0: Not long ago, I watched a news special on ABC News, uh, hosted by Barbara Walters. Barbara Walters is a well-known newswoman with ABC News, and the show was on Heaven, Where Is It?, and How Do You Get There? During the program, Barbara Walters interviewed a wide range of people about their beliefs about heaven—Christians, Muslims, atheists, all sorts of people— and at the end of the program, here is how she concluded her show. She said, some people believe in heaven, some people don't believe in heaven. Some people believe that we can know how to get there, other people aren't so sure that we can know how we get there, but maybe it really doesn't matter, because at the end of the day, what really matters is whether you have faith or not, and for those who have faith, heaven is meaningful, and for those who don't have faith, heaven is not meaningful. I was deeply disappointed in the program, not only because of its conclusions about heaven, but because of the view of faith that was expressed by Barbara Walters in her closing remarks. The contemporary view of faith is faith is believing something by an act of will, whether it's true or not. Or to put the matter differently, according to contemporary society, faith is the choice to believe something in the complete absence of any evidence whatsoever. Some people have faith, others don't. Some people choose to believe certain things, others don't have the faith to believe them. What exactly is faith? What is faith according to the Scriptures? How does faith relate to reason and knowledge? And what does the Scripture say about the role of reason in fostering Or developing faith. These are some of the topics I'd like to talk about in the time that we have in this particular session. And I'd like to begin by asking you the question, what do you think faith is? If I were to ask you to take out a sheet of paper and write down in three or four sentences, or even one sentence, what your definition of faith is, what would you put down? I believe that if you were to look carefully at the scriptures, you would find that faith is trusting something we know to be true. Faith is trusting something we know to be true. Another synonym for faith is trust or confidence or reliance. We talk about faith, we're talking about having confidence or we're talking about having trust or exhibiting reliance. Now, faith can be directed towards an object or towards a truth. For example, if I have faith in a chair, that means I have confidence in that chair that it will hold me before I sit down in it. On the other hand, I may have faith in the truth, the truth that says the chair was made by reliable people and it will hold you. That is faith directed toward the truth of the assertion, and so I can direct faith both towards an object and towards the truth. In the Scriptures, faith is directed either toward God or toward some revealed truth of God in His Word. Thus, God is a proper object of truth, but the Scriptures themselves and their teachings is a proper object of truth. I can say I have faith in God, or I can say I have faith that the scriptural teaching is correct about the, the family or about forgiveness or whatever it might be. So faith is confidence, it is reliance, it is trust in either God or some truth that He has revealed, and faith is based on knowledge. It may surprise you to know that the Bible has more to say about knowledge than it has about faith. And it is very, very important to realize that faith is not in competition with knowledge. Many people today think that faith is one thing and knowledge is the other, and the two should never mix. Thus, I heard a Christian who held this view say not long ago that when he turns on his water in his kitchen and the water runs out, he doesn't have faith that water's there because he knows the water's there, But he has faith in God precisely because he doesn't know that God is there. In his view, faith is trusting something in the dark precisely when we don't have knowledge. The reason that he did not have to exercise faith that the water was there was because he knew the water was coming out of the sprocket, but the reason he had to exercise faith in God was because he didn't really know that God was there. This is a disastrous view of faith because it severs faith from reason. It takes faith and knowledge and pits them against one another. I actually had an experience of this kind of tension between faith and knowledge when I gave an evangelistic talk not long ago in the state of New York. I was asked to fly to New York and I was in a school gymnasium speaking about the gospel to a large audience with a lot of non-Christians. After I spoke, there was a microphone where people could come and ask questions. The first two questions that were asked were very clearly by non-Christians who wanted to know more about my view of God. The third person who asked a question was a believer. This woman got on the microphone and said, Dr. Moreland, I'm really troubled by your talk. Well I said I'm sorry uh, what troubles you she said if you prove there is a god from evidence what room are you leaving for faith now you have to understand that i was thinking if you're right about this dear lady we ought to pray that god will bring in all kinds of evidence against the bible that will be show that the bible's filled with contradictions so that we'll have more room for faith <laughs> But of course, this is a silly notion, but this dear woman was saying that the more you know about God, the less room there is for faith. Now, I think it is exactly the opposite. I believe that the more you know about something, the more you can place faith in it. Consider the chair, for example. The more I know about that chair, the more I am able to place my trust in the chair, assuming the chair is reliable. If I didn't know anything at all about the chair, and you asked me, did I trust the chair, did I have confidence it would hold me, I would have no basis on whether to place trust in it or not. So it is absolutely critical to understand that in a biblical understanding of faith, much less a common sense understanding of faith, faith is based upon knowledge, and it's based upon reason. Faith, therefore, is confidence or trust in something that we have reason to believe, is true. Another important point about faith is that faith comes in degrees. In this sense, faith is very much like the sky being cloudy. The sky is either cloudy or it's not cloudy. But once the sky is cloudy, the cloudiness of the sky can come in degrees. It can be completely cloudy, it can be 70% cloudy, it can be 30% cloudy, and so on. Now, faith is the same way. You either do or you do not have faith in something, but once you have faith in something, your faith can be present to a greater or a lesser degree. Now, why is this important? I think as disciples of Jesus, it is important for us not merely to ask what we have faith in and what we don't have faith in. It is also important for us to ask the question, what is the degree of faith we have in something? Take very very simply the idea that prayer works. I might ask someone, do you actually believe that prayer works? The person who may be a Christian would say perhaps, yes, I do believe that prayer works, but this person may have prayed for a long time for something, and only believe that prayer works to a small degree. It would be important then for that person to realize that over the next few years he or she should try to develop their degree of confidence that faith really work, that prayer really works after all. You see, if you have weak faith, you're not an unbeliever. You're a person who does in fact believe in something. You simply need for your faith to grow, that's all. And there's nothing to be ashamed of about that. All of us need for our faith to grow more strong and more firm as time goes on. So we come to understand that when we assess our progress in the Lord Jesus, it is not enough simply to ask if we have faith in the forgiveness of sins or not, or some other aspect of our religion. But what is the degree of faith that we have, and how can we improve that degree? Now, the idea then that is that faith comes in degrees, but it is based on knowledge. And I think it's very, very important to say that, that knowledge does not require you to be completely certain of something. You can know something without being sure you're right about it. For example, Paul says in one of his letters, This I want you to know with certainty. Now, if I were to say to you, I would like a hamburger with cheese on it. That wouldn't make any sense to ask that if hamburgers already had cheese on them. It is only if it's possible to have a hamburger without cheese. Does it make any sense for me to say, I would like a hamburger with cheese? Now, by the same token, for Paul to say, this I want you to know with certainty, if you could only know things that you were 100% sure of, then it would make absolutely no sense for Paul to say, this I want you to know with certainty. But the idea that faith comes in degrees and you can have knowledge of something without being 100% sure you're right about it is indicated by Paul's statement, this I want you to know with certainty. Now, why is it that important for you to know? It is important because you can know that God is real but still have doubts and questions about His reality. There's nothing embarrassing about having a doubt or a question. It's very, very important then, as a part of faith, for you to learn to face and to address your doubts. As a matter of fact, facing and addressing your doubts can be one of the greatest ways of growing your faith that I know of. That's because doubt undermines knowledge, and faith is built on knowledge. Now, how would you address a doubt? Suppose you had a doubt about something. Maybe you're doubting that God is really good, or perhaps you doubt there is a God. Maybe you doubt that God really loves you after all. Or perhaps you doubt deep down that you're really, really forgiven of your sins. How do you address your doubt? Well, the first thing you do is you write your doubt down on a sheet of paper. You try to get it down and be specific about what exactly is your doubt. And I believe you ought to be able to write your doubt down in a paragraph. Try to make it a clear, concise paragraph so you have in words exactly what it is that's causing your doubt, what it's about. The second thing that you want to do then is to try to find an answer to your doubt. You want to go to older Christians and read your doubt to them and ask them if they have advice as to how to treat the doubt. You want to read and to do research and to, and to study and think about the doubt and to try to find things that will help you overcome the doubt. Uh, to put the matter very simply, what you want to do is to doubt your doubt. <laughs> you want to ask yourself the question, is this doubt really that impressive after all? Or do I have some good reasons for doubting the doubt? So, because knowledge is so important to faith, it is important for you to face your doubts and to deal with them honestly. And by the way, you can have doubt about something that you actually know to be true. It would be possible for someone to know God was real, but still have doubts about it from time to time. Remember, Knowledge does not require that you be 100% certain. Knowledge is a belief about something that's true, that's based on good grounds. That's what knowledge is. It's a true belief that is based on good, solid, adequate grounds. And we have a true belief that God is real, based on the solid grounds of biblical teaching. We therefore know God is real, even if we have doubts. So what have I said? I've tried to say that faith is not a blind step in the dark, that you simply have to believe or not believe something. No, faith is a confidence, trust, or reliance in an object or a truth that is based on good reasons and knowledge. Faith comes in degrees, so that you can believe something to a greater or lesser degree, and knowledge does not require certainty, And what that means is it's an appropriate thing for you to address your doubts as you're seeking to grow in faith. Now we turn to this whole question about the biblical basis of the role of reason and evidence in believing in God. There is in the New Testament and in the history of the church a concept known as apologetics. Apologetics is a ministry, it's a form of ministry. Apologetics is learning to give reasons for why we believe Christianity is true and responding to objections raised against it. If I could say that again, apologetics is learning to give reasons for why we believe Christianity is true and responding to objections raised against it. Now, many people say... That the Bible doesn't try to prove God's existence, so that apologetics is not needed. Instead, the argument goes, the Bible merely asserts that God exists, but it never attempts to prove the existence of God. With all due respect, I beg to differ with that claim. I do believe that in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, the Bible does not try to prove that God exists compared to atheism. The reason for that, of course, is that there were hardly any atheists at all in the ancient Near Eastern world, so it would have been a waste of time for the scriptures to have tried to show God is real in the face of atheism when there were no atheists. But, if you investigate the ancient Near Eastern world around the people of Israel, you will discover that while the other nations were not atheistic, they were polytheistic. They believed in many deities. And as a matter of fact, in many of these religions, they believed that once a year, the gods would have sexual intercourse, their seed would spill to the ground, and their seed would cause the crops to grow. Thus, on a yearly basis in these religious practices they would engage in frenzied orgies to induce the deities to have relations so that their seed would fall to the ground and they would guarantee that their crops would bloom on a yearly cycle. Now, it is in the midst of that context that in Genesis we read something truly remarkable. And if you have a Bible, I'd like to invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. We read something in Genesis chapter 1, verses 11 and 12 that we're used to, but is truly breathtaking if you understand its original context. Here's what the verse says. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth, And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Notice very carefully that according to the text we've just read, God does not create all life miraculously or directly. No. What God did was to create the first kinds of life, in this case grass and fruit-bearing trees. Then he delegated to those kinds the power to recreate life in their own being. Thus, what causes the crops to grow, what causes tomatoes to grow, or corn, or wheat, is not the deity creating them directly, no, What causes corn and wheat and tomatoes to grow are the seeds that are already implanted by God in wheat and in corn and in tomatoes. Now, notice very carefully then, based upon Genesis chapter 1 and the ancient Near Eastern world, we now have an empirical test that we could perform to decide whose God was the real God. Was it the God of the Bible? Or was it the deities of polytheistic religions? You will notice that if Genesis is true, it predicts an experiment that you could perform. And what would that experiment be? According to Genesis, if any nation refrained from engaging in its orgies and its rituals in order to induce the gods to have relations, the crops would still come because the power to generate the crops is in the seed itself. However, if the polytheistic religions were true, and there was no attempt to induce the deities to have relations, they would not have those relations, and the crops would not grow. Now we have an observable empirical test as to which deity is the correct deity. And this would be a test that could be performed by simply observing whether the crops grew after refraining from the rituals of orgy and so forth. Thus, it is true that the Bible in Genesis 1 and 2 does not try to prove the existence of God relative to atheism, but it does prove the existence of the biblical God relative to the polytheistic religions that surrounded Israel— in the ancient Near Eastern world. What is the lesson to be learned from this? The lesson to be learned is that it is not inappropriate for us to try to persuade people through argument and evidence that God exists. And we will actually take a look at some of that evidence and some of those arguments in a later session in this series. But for now, I want to make the point that trying to persuade people through evidence and argument that there is a supreme being is not contrary to faith. Like that woman assumed in that gymnasium in which I spoke, when she said, Dr. Moreland, if you prove there's a God from evidence, what room are you leaving for faith? That view of faith does not harmonize with Genesis chapter 1, because If the biblical view of God is true, you could prove that the God of the Bible is real, relative to the Canaanite deities, for example. But that then provided the reasons for going ahead and trusting or having faith in the biblical God. So it is important to realize that it is not at all inappropriate for us to provide evidence and argument that God exists, in order to provide a basis for faith, rather than seeing faith as something to be exercised in the complete absence of evidence and reason. Now what I'd like for you to do, if you have your New Testament, is to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 5. Second Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 5. I want to take a look at a passage that I believe is the second most important text in the New Testament on spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare, of course, is described in Ephesians chapter 6, and we are told in Ephesians chapter 6 to engage in prayer and a whole range of things engaging in spiritual warfare. But 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 3 to 5 has a teaching on spiritual warfare that is very, very relevant to our topic of the relationship between faith and reason. Let's read these texts together, beginning in verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. That means the church does not take up arms, guns, and tanks to defend the church. For though we walk according to the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, For the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly, but are powerful in God for the destruction of fortresses, or strongholds. Now this tells us that when we're engaged in spiritual warfare, we are supposed to target not only demons, and to bind them and pray against them and to cast them away, but We are, in addition to that, supposed to target fortresses, strongholds. That raises the question, what exactly is a fortress or a stronghold that we are to fight against? Well, other translations define the word fortress or stronghold as a speculation. And in fact, if you were to look at verse 5, A stronghold is further defined in this way. We are, the text says, casting down arguments, reasonings, speculations, and every lofty thought raised up against the knowledge, not the power, of God. This tells us, then, that in spiritual warfare, you and I are supposed to be targeting for war, Arguments, reasonings, theories, ideas. What kind of arguments and reasonings and theories and ideas? Those that are raised up against the Holy Scriptures that make knowledge of God seem silly and impossible, that contradict the Word of God. What we are to do then, if we are to fight spiritual warfare, is we are to learn to reason on behalf of... Of the cause of Christ and this will involve not only learning the scriptures but it will involve us learning how to reason for principles and and from materials that are outside the biblical text let me give you an example of this in colossians 1:19 colossians 1:19 the apostle paul says that in christ all of the fullness of god dwells. Now let me explain to you the significance of that passage for our topic this evening. In the area surrounding the Church of Colossae, there was a form of belief called pre-Christian Gnosticism. This pre-Christian Gnosticism that surrounded the Colossian area believed that matter was evil and that God could not come into contact with matter. So instead, they pictured the universe in the following way. Here at the top was God. Down at the bottom was the material world. And in between God and the material world were a series of angels that fell into ranks. The angels at the top of the the series were almost entirely composed of spirit. The angels a little bit lower were composed more of matter and a little bit less of spirit, until the angels at the very bottom were composed almost entirely of matter and very little of spirit. In this way, God was able to communicate to angels what he wanted done in creation, and the angels he communicated to were almost completely composed of spirit with almost no matter in them. They would communicate down the chain until finally the last angels, who were almost entirely made out of matter, would receive their instructions and would do things in the material world which was made out of matter and was therefore evil. In this picture, God was therefore able to keep himself distant from matter by communicating his actions and his will through this chain of ranks of angels. There was a word for this rank of angels in the Colossi area, and the word for that rank of angels was called the fullness, or in Greek the word pleroma. This was called the fullness, and the fullness, namely, This rank ordering of angels mediated God and the world. It stood between God and the world and kept God holy. Paul knew that. Paul picked up on the idea that there was a pleroma or a fullness between God and the world that mediated between the two. But it wasn't because matter is evil. It was because the world was in sin. And the mediator between God and the world was not a series of angels, but it was Christ Jesus himself. Do you see what the Apostle Paul was doing? The Apostle Paul had obviously read and studied very thoroughly the culture he was trying to evangelize. In In the process of his reading and studying, he came across the idea of the hierarchy of angels called the Pleroma. He realized that they were wrong in part of their understanding, but right in the other part, so he seized on this concept of the Pleroma, Christianized it, and used it in his efforts to persuade the Colossian people that they were right about the need for a mediator between God and the world, but wrong about the identity of the mediator, It was not a rank ordering of angels, but it was Jesus Christ himself. The lesson? Paul used reason and study and knowledge to engage in spiritual warfare. He destroyed a stronghold, a fortress, a speculation, that was raised up against the knowledge of God. And in so doing... He demonstrated how it is that we fight spiritual warfare against strongholds. How do we fight spiritual warfare against strongholds? We reason. We argue without being mean-spirited. I tell people we argue without being argumentative. But we lay out our case. We reason. We present evidence. And we present arguments and evidence against false beliefs and on behalf of true beliefs that the Christian faith claim is a part of God's revelation to us. But not only did Paul believe in arguing and presenting evidence on behalf of the Christian faith, but Jesus Christ himself believed that it was important for him to present evidence and argument on behalf of his own teachings. You may recall that in Colossians 2.3, we are told that in Jesus Christ lay all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If that's correct, it follows from that that the key to anything, the key to chemistry, the key to physics, the key to history, the key to literature, the key to art, is going to reside ultimately in Jesus Christ himself and as his followers we have access to the very source of wisdom and knowledge, Christ Jesus. And Jesus Christ demonstrated in his own public ministry the importance of learning how to give evidence and argument on behalf of what he was teaching. In fact, it is my view that Jesus Christ was the smartest man who ever lived. He towered over any other intellectual leader in the history of human civilization. And while it was not Jesus' style to always demonstrate his brilliance, because he spent a good bit of his time dealing with simple folk-like fishermen and so on, nevertheless, when the occasion called for it, Jesus Christ could demonstrate how extremely wise and intelligent he was. To illustrate this, would you open in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. In Matthew 22, we have a situation where we have the equivalent of two university faculties that don't like each other, and they are having a debate among themselves about a certain topic. They have heard that there is this teacher that is traveling around and lecturing in the universities, but he does not have an earned doctorate from one of their schools. Of course, that teacher was Jesus Christ. They have decided that they would gather a public meeting between the professors at both universities. They would invite their graduate students to come to the public lecture. They would invite this unaccredited teacher to come in and lecture. And they would demonstrate, by the the profundity of their questions, how uneducated and how stupid and silly this teacher was... And as a result, their disciples would not be tempted to leave their teaching and follow after him. And so what we have in Matthew 22, 36, is one of the scholars comes up to Jesus, who is a teacher of the law, and says, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment of the law? Now, you have to understand that these university professors in those days the Sadducees and the Pharisees, who were the intellectual leaders of Jewish culture in Jesus' day, these intellectuals spent their entire days studying the Old Testament law. They had endless debates about how to summarize the Old Testament. And when this teacher comes up to Jesus and says, what is the greatest commandment, here is what he's actually asking Jesus. He is saying to Jesus, Rabbi, can you summarize the 39 books of the Old Testament for me in a few sentences. How would you like to be asked that question? That's a very, very difficult question to answer. But Jesus, being the brilliant person that he was, was able to answer the question without thinking a moment about it. And Jesus said, Would you like for me to summarize the entire 39 books of the Old Testament in a few sentences? All right. Here is the very core of Old Testament teaching. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Or to put it differently, on these two commandments, the entire text of the Old Testament depends. Now, notice, first of all, that Jesus Christ was prepared to answer the question. He was an intellectual of the first order. But secondly, notice that in his answer, he emphasized the fact that we are not only to love God with our hearts and with our souls, but we are also to love him with all of our minds. It is important, then, that as a part of loving the Lord Jesus, that we not only develop our tenderness of heart and an obedient will, but we train our intellects to be Christian in their depths and in their deepest nature. We want to learn to be sharp thinkers. We want to be as well-educated as we can possibly be for the cause of Christ. We need, jur- we need Christians to go into journalism. We need Christians to go into business. We need Christians to go into law. We need Christians to go into psychology and art and literature and philosophy and science for the cause of Christ. So they can learn to think as Jesus would in those respective fields and disciplines for the kingdom of God. And Jesus Christ said that we are to love God with our mind, and that includes learning how to think as Jesus himself would think in our business or our art or literature or whatever the subject might be. Now you will notice that in the verses just preceding this text... We have a test of Jesus' ability to handle debate when the occasion surfaced. We have a Sadducee come up to Jesus and advance what is called a reductio ad absurdum argument against Jesus. Now, a reductio ad absurdum argument sounds very heady and technical, but it's really pretty simple when you get a handle on what it is. In a reductio ad absurdum argument, You take your opponent's position, you grant that it's true for the sake of argument, you show that if it's true, it leads to this absurd conclusion, and therefore you say, since your position, if true, leads to this absurd conclusion, you should give up your view. You have reduced your opponent's position to an absurdity, a reductio ad absurdum. This is exactly what the Sadducees tried to do with the Lord Jesus. They did not believe in life after death. They came up to Jesus and said, Jesus, you believe in life after death like the Pharisees. We disagree with you and with the Pharisees. We're going to ask you a question that we have asked the Pharisees, and they can't answer it. We want to know what you're going to say about it. And here's the question. There was a woman who married, uh, had a husband, and he died, and Moses permits the woman to marry the next brother to bring children for her. Then he dies, and then she marries the next brother, and so on, until under the law of Moses, she marries seven brothers in a row, and she then dies and goes to heaven. Now she's in heaven with all seven brothers. Here's the question. To whom is she married? Is she married to all seven of the brothers? If that's your statement, Jesus, then Moses permits polygamy. Is she married to just one of the brothers? Then Moses permits adultery with the other six. Do you believe in polygamy or adultery? If you believe in life after death, Jesus, then these are the only two options you have before you. You have to embrace either adultery or polygamy. Now, Jesus demonstrated his intellectual abilities as a debater by going right to the heart of their argument, and he exposed the weakness of their argument with one sentence. Jesus said, you are mistaken and don't understand the scriptures because in heaven there is no such thing as marriage. Now, how does that answer the problem? Well, you may recall that they tried to place Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. You either have to believe in adultery or polygamy in heaven, which is it, Jesus. But note very carefully that both of these alternatives make a common assumption that there is marriage in heaven. So there's even, either marriage to more than one husband, polygamy, or marriage to only one husband, adultery with the other six, both assume that there's marriage in heaven. When Jesus says you're mistaken because there is no such thing as marriage in heaven, they no longer have an argument. Their argument has vanished, and it has now been reduced to to an absurdity itself. The point is that our founder, the Lord Jesus, was capable of high-level reasoning with the university professors of his day. I have a former student of mine, Sudhakar Mondithika, and Sudhakar ministers the gospel in India, in the surrounding area. One of the things I so appreciate about Sudhakar is that he goes to the universities, he goes to the judges, he goes to the justices and the people who are the engineers and the scientists in the university class of his culture, and seeks to persuade them about the truth of the Christian faith. Do we need to minister among the poor and the destitute? Of course we need to. Do we need to minister among those that are in the middle class? Of course. But one of the things that we have failed to do many times is to send our evangelism and our persuasion efforts to the academics and the intellectuals and the university classes of our societies. By following Jesus' example here, we see that faith is based upon reason And the ability to reason is an important aspect of propagating the gospel and building faith into people. As a matter of fact, I call this persuasive evangelism. Persuasive evangelism is the effort to to provide good, solid intellectual reasons for faith in order to persuade someone, with the help of the Holy Spirit, to become a Christian. Do we find persuasive evangelism in other parts of the Scriptures besides Jesus' engagement with the Sadducees and the Pharisees? Well, indeed, we do. As a matter of fact, throughout the book of Acts, persuasive evangelism is one of the main ways, not the only way, but one of the main ways that the gospel was preached to unbelievers. And to see that, I'd like to ask you to turn to Acts chapter 17, Verses 2 through 4. In Acts chapter 17, we have the Apostle Paul engaging in a, group, in a synagogue in Thessalonica. And in verses 2 through 4, we are told the following about Paul's practice with these people. Verse 2. Then Paul, as was his custom, this was his practice, went into them, and for three Sabbaths he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ, and in verse 4 it says, and some of them were Not converted, but persuaded. Note very carefully that what Paul is doing is presenting arguments. He's reasoning. He's using argumentation. He is giving evidence and persuading. They're asking him, why in the world do you believe this? Can you give us any evidence for believing this? And Paul was giving them evidence. He was persuading. He didn't expect them to simply believe him because he said it. He presented evidence. Now, if you'll take a look in the same chapter of Acts 17, if you'll skip down to verse 17, we find that Paul is no longer reasoning with Jews in the synagogue, but he is now reasoning with uh, um, Jews and with God-fearing Gentiles, some of whom were Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And it says in verse 17, He was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Now, if you go on and you read the Apostle Paul's speech, you will discover that one of the things he did was to quote the Greek philosophers Epimenides and Erastus because he says, in him we live and move, And have our being, as one of your own poets and philosophers has said. Thus the Apostle Paul engaged in reasoning and persuasion, not simply by using the biblical text, but by using evidence and truth wherever it could be found. What that tells us then is that it's not inappropriate to reason from the creation, to reason from science, to reason from fulfilled prophecy to reason from historical evidence that God exists and that Christianity is true. Take, for example, Romans chapter 1. We are told in Romans chapter 1 that from the beginning of creation, God's existence and his invisible attributes have been made known, being revealed, not simply through Holy Scripture, but as Romans tells us, being revealed in what has been made. In Romans chapter 2, we are told that the moral law has been revealed and is known in conscience within. Thus, we have in Romans 1 and 2 the idea that there is evidence for God's existence and evidence for the moral law, not simply to be accepted because the Bible teaches these things, but because creation demands them. Indeed, Psalm 19 tells us that the created world actually screams out the existence of a personal God. I am suggesting to you then that it's very, very important for us to realize that in talking to unbelievers about our faith, we do not simply tell our testimony to people, though we do that, and expect them to believe, but in addition to sharing our testimony, we are to learn to give reasons and evidence and to persuade people that God is real and that Jesus Christ has risen bodily from the dead. Turn over very briefly to Acts chapter 18, and you will discover one of the very same things. If you take a look at Acts 18, and if you look at verse 4, we are told... And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuading both Jews and Greeks. And we find this very same pattern in Acts 19 and in Acts 20. And so the lesson is this. Faith is based upon reason. It is not contrary to reason. And we actually find, in addition to Jesus Christ reasoning with the Sadducees and the Pharisees, we find one of the main ways evangelism was done in the book of Acts that the Apostle Paul is reasoning, explaining, and giving evidence and trying to persuade people that God is real and that Jesus is the Christ from evidence. Now, in this way, the Apostle Paul was actually consistent with the advice we have in the first epistle of Peter's. And I would like, if you don't mind, to ask you to turn to 1 Peter 3.15. 1 Peter 3.15. In 1 Peter 3.15, we are told the following by the great apostle. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, With meekness and fear. Now, what this tells us is that when we go about giving evidence to people in our witnessing, we are to do it with gentleness and meekness and not be arrogant, but still we are to give a reason for the hope that is within us. And the term in the Greek text that says to give everyone a defense who asks you for a reason, the word reason is the Greek word logos. And that word means a good reason for something. If you were to ask me, can you give me a good reason why you think this car is a good car to purchase? If I were to say to you, yes, because the tires are good and it's been checked and it doesn't burn oil and the engine's in good working order, I would have given you my logos for why I think you should purchase the car. In fact, apologetics in the New Testament is the art of giving a logos a reason for the hope that is within. We are to give a defense of our faith. There is nothing about faith itself that means it is contrary to reason. To be candid with you, if you would look at Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, we are told that we are to be transformed through the renewing of our minds. To have your mind renewed is to learn to reason and think biblically instead of reasoning and thinking according to the world and the schemes of the devil. What I've tried to say, I believe, is very, very important. Unfortunately, the American church has become anti-intellectual and it has lost the biblical emphasis on the life of the mind and the importance of reason in undergirding faith. The contemporary view is that faith is one thing, reason is another, and they should not be mixed with one another. Faith is a choice to believe something. But I say by contrast, faith is a confidence, a trust, a reliance in something based upon knowledge and good evidence. And as we've looked at the biblical text, we found that while Genesis 1 does not try to prove God exists to an atheist, It does try to prove that the biblical God is real compared to the polytheistic deities in the ancient Near East by providing a test. We find that the Apostle Paul tells us that spiritual warfare is a warfare that is waged by destroying theories, by destroying ideas that are raised up against the knowledge of God. How do you destroy a theory? How do you destroy an idea? You don't preach against it or argue or yell at it. You reason against it. You argue against it. You present evidence that undermines that argument. Did Jesus do that? You bet he did. In his encounter with the Sadducees and the Pharisees, we find him giving arguments and evidence to destroy a stronghold. In that case, there's no life after death in order for people to be liberated to believe the truth that there is life after death. We find the Apostle Paul doing this very same thing throughout his evangelistic efforts in the book of Acts. Indeed, we find him engaged in what I like to call persuasive evangelism, the attempt to give arguments for God's existence and evidence that Jesus Christ lived and was the Messiah. And we find that in doing so, The Apostle Paul's practices are consistent with the the Apostle Peter's advice in 1 Peter 3.15 when he tells us, Always be prepared to give a defense to anyone who asks you to give, not a feeling, but a reason for the hope that is within you. May I say in closing that the Christian religion is a religion that values reason and that the biblical view of faith does not see faith as divorced from reason but is something that is based on it.